Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter number 2. The book of Colossians chapter 2. The theme of the book of Colossians is, um, and uniquely Riley actually started us off this summer, less than a week after my surgery. I was, uh, Riley preached at the beginning of the summer, and uh, he preached from Colossians chapter 1. Uh, here, as we finish the summer, we'll be in Colossians chapter 3 and work our way, or chapter 2 and work our way just a little bit into chapter 3. But the theme really of the book of Colossians is the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Um, the sufficiency of Christ primarily tonight we're going to be looking at, not just in our salvation, but in our sanctification, which is very much what, uh, uniquely what Pastor, the way he started off his message even just this morning, if you were here, uh, was very similar to the way I had planned on starting off this evening. Jesus Christ didn't just come to change our final destination. Jesus Christ also came, and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf was also to change us into the likeness of Christ. And so uh, one of the things that we find in this, uh, is in this little four-chapter book, primarily in the first three chapters, and I think it's really laid out for us best in chapter number two, is that there is teaching that is going on in the church at Colossae um, that is really uh, errant when it comes to how it is that people change, how it is that people mature. Paul lets it be known in chapter number one that his goal and his aim in his ministry is to preach Christ for the, perf- for the purpose of people being able to be presented mature in Christ. So not just saved, not just saved and you slip into heaven um, based on a prayer that you pray or, or you, you, you make it into heaven, really, um, you know, not just that you make it into heaven even if by the hair on your chinny chin chin. No, it's, he says, no, I, I, I preach Christ so that people can pre- be presented mature. Look at it. It's at the end of chapter number one. He says, verse 28, he says, him, talking about Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here's Paul's main concern in his ministry, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Um, Paul doesn't just want people to be changed in their standing. He wants people to be changed in their lives into the image of Jesus Christ. And he says, that's why we preach Christ. And so I want us to look, we're going to look at the end of the passage that we're going to be looking at. I'd love to pray and ask God to help us, but I want us to see, um, and I don't, uh, in Colossians, he doesn't really put an exact name on a certain um, uh, on a certain, there's not a specific name that is given to the teaching. We're going to look at a, a few things that I think um, he, he gives us here in chapter two that are, are the wrong types of teaching when it comes to how it is that we change into the likeness of Christ. And we have victory over sin, like Pastor was talking about even as he's begun this new series. How is it that we have victory and we're changed when it comes to the hard parts of the sin struggle that we face. Listen to what he says, verse 23. He says these things, okay? So these, uh, these here in verse 23, and I'm looking at the ESV, these 
um, are the teachings. Okay, I'm going to look at three different things. But these teachings, okay, if I can insert that word to help us understand verse 23. These teachings have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But here's the problem. You ready? But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's the problem. They have no power. They seem good. They seem like they would help us, but they have no power. And ultimately, it's because they're not holding on to Christ. And we will look at how the passage lays this out for us. But can we pray together and uh, ask God to help us? Father, we come to you. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. I pray that you will help us to see that it is through Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. But then it is through Christ and Christ alone, the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. Lord, that is how we are changed for your glory. That's how we are changed into the image of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ and holding on to him. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see maybe ways in which we fall into this wrong teaching. Um, Lord, even in our own lives, and we don't want to, we don't intend to, but many times we do. I pray that you will help us to hold on to Christ. And we commit this to you in Christ's precious name. Amen. You know, burdened about this passage of Scripture as I was um, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, well, or maybe it was last week, guys. I'd have to think about it. But we were at uh, in Hamtramck, and we had uh, several events for several nights in a row. Um, and here towards the end of the summer, I've been able to be out a little more and at different events. And we were with Jay Searcy in Hamtramck at the Hamtramck Homes, they're called. It's some projects there, subsidized housing uh, project that, um, that his church works in every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. If you go there, you find uh, a whole handful of folks from Grace Baptist Church there just working in the park with the kids. Uh, Jay's there every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, all summer long. And then there's another park across town that's primarily the Muslim kids from Yemeni. And there's another group of their church that are there every Friday, every Sunday night and every Wednesday night, just making connections. And I, uh, as we had the, the cookout on Friday night, I uh, had one particular man who was so overwhelmingly intoxicated, I couldn't even carry on a conversation with him because he could barely stand up. Uh, another man a few minutes later that I began to talk to, and uh, I was trying to draw attention to something that he had on his shirt because I was hoping to use it. It had a religious reference, and so I was uh, hoping to use it to to kind of work into the gospel. He, holding on to a bunch of food that he had just gotten, was so intoxicated that as he's trying to look at his shirt, because he couldn't remember what was on his shirt, he's like turning his head around trying to see, and he kind of loses balance and almost falls down because his intoxication level was so high. If it wasn't so sad, it'd be funny. I remember just uh, talking with Jay and just talking about the people in the Hamtramck homes, and um, their sin is so prevalent. It's so overwhelming um, that part of what you're convincing them of is not just that they can have forgiveness forever for their sin, but they know that their lives are such a mess that we can present to them and we need to present to them that this same Jesus who will change your eternity, he is the hope for your life right now too. 
a kid that I went to a Christian school with, I grew up with, I'll never forget. He's one of the saddest stories I know. If I think about him too long, it makes it, I could, I could just cry. His name is Jason. A few years behind me in my Christian school. So addicted to crack cocaine. It's his drug of choice. Um, our family has tried to help him so many times. He's homeless. Grew up in the church. Grew up hearing the truth. Knows the truth. Sitting with him in my dad's office, sharing the gospel with him. My dad has worked with him over the years more than I have. I haven't lived in my hometown of Rocky Mountain, North Carolina since, since 1996. But talked to him many times myself. My dad has talked to him dozens of times, but I'll never forget the conversation that I had with him as he was explaining his life and how he lives under this bridge just off the highway. And he comes out and he just stands on the exit and he begs for money and how much money he gets and how he blows it all. And he, his goal is to have enough to at least once a week to get a hotel and take a shower before he heads back out. So overwhelmingly addicted to his substances. And uh, I'll never forget talking to him one day and I'm talking about Christ. I'm talking about the gospel. He's like, Aaron, I know it. I've heard it my whole life. He's the nicest kid. Didn't have any teeth in his mouth. He's probably four or five years younger than me. They're all gone. And he said, Aaron, I don't want to go to hell. And then I'll never forget what he said. He said, there's no way I can stop doing drugs. There's no way. And then I'll never forget this, this statement right here. It was, it was something along these lines. He said, he said, Aaron, something would have to, he said, something would have to change about who I am for me to ever be able to stop doing drugs. Folks, you want to know what the good news for Jason is? That Jesus Christ came to change who we are. Not just to change our final destination. But I think sometimes we don't offer that Jesus to someone. And I think sometimes it's because we're not totally convinced that Jesus can really change who we are. I think sometimes we don't offer that Jesus the, a life changing, not just a eternity changing. <laughs> I mean, again, we, we, we love the, the eternity changing part of who Jesus is and what he came to do for us in our salvation. And we love to sing about it. We talk about it, the hope of eternity. We hold on to it. But do we really believe that he's a life-changing Jesus? Because the, the false teaching to the Colossian church was that there was something that you grab a hold to outside of Jesus himself to actually get victory over sin. And Paul says, hey, listen, these, these different philosophies, they have an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance of maybe something that might work, but they have no power. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the only one who can change who we are. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Do we believe that it's Christ and Christ alone that changes us? I want us to look at, at three false teachings that were going on at the church at Colossae that I think um, 
I think we can fall prey to. Different, maybe. And as we look at these, maybe we can see some ways in which we fall prey to wrong teaching. Seems good, sounds good. Can't change us, has no power. The first one I think Paul brings up in verse number 16 is really a traditionalism. I guess I could call it that. Um, Listen to what it says, verse number 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadow or a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the first thing that he brings up is he says, you know, the, the people at the church of Colossae, apparently they were listening to this teaching that was really heavy on the make sure you do this, make sure you don't do this, make sure you keep this, make sure you don't, you know, you're, and this, the, these man-made, I, I would say, but at the same time, what he lists here are things that probably have, that really have to do with the dietary restrictions that we find in the Old Testament. For the church here in Colossae and for us today, I believe it's very clear in the New Testament, these dietary restrictions have been lifted. We are not under obligation of keeping those. Um, for sure, for the sake of our salvation, but then even after our salvation, are these the things that make us spiritual? Are these the things that make us holy? Are these the things that grow us? The keeping of, of make sure to do this and make sure not to do this. And I think we think about people who would fall prey to the teaching that you have to keep Old Testament dietary laws in order to, 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 to mature. Okay, remember Paul's Paul's emphasis is, I want to preach Christ so that people mature and they can be presented mature in Christ. And so, so he says, he says, don't, don't live, don't, don't live in the judgment of other people coming at you with these, with these, um, heavy pressures of make sure to do this, make sure not to do this. This is what will mature you. This is what makes you spiritual. Now, what does it look like for us? For us, I think we can fall prey to man-made traditions that aren't wrong. They're not bad. There's nothing wrong with them. Maybe they're even something that's good, but they don't have the power to change us. They, they don't have the power to change our heart. They don't have the power to change who we are. You know, I've been, I mean, I even think, um, you know, I travel them in so many churches and it's just amazing. So many churches across the country and they're all so different. You have some churches where they dress up. So, man, it's like a really big deal what you look like. I'm not in as many of those churches as I used to be in. But then at the same time, other churches who it doesn't seem to be as big of a deal. Um, uh, the, the Bible really doesn't handle, this is a, a man-made tradition. I really don't, I'm personally, okay? Personally, I'm not really into looking sloppy for church, but do I really, even my son this morning, my wife was out of town this morning. She had to go to a, a wedding in Iowa. She got back this afternoon. So guess who was in charge of getting the boys dressed this morning? Oh yeah. Um, they, I said, you're on your own guys. They come out, they look like, you know, they, they, you know, they come out with t-shirts on. I'm like, come on guys. And I, I, and I made them, I wanted them to wear a collar. Is it really? And they're like, come on dad, what's the big deal? I mean, it, does it really make you more spiritual to wear a collar to church? No. It's a man-made tradition. Matter of fact, if you're going to really get specific about what does the Bible say about dress on as the church gathers together, that really the, well, you know, I mean, on one side, there's a big emphasis made about dressing up too much in the midst of the poor people, 
you know, with all the jewelry and the braided hair. I mean, so, but there's nothing wrong with these things, but they're traditions of men. Do Do they make us more spiritual? We all know that this doesn't make us more spiritual. We know that this doesn't make us more holy. We know that we know that it doesn't mature us, these traditions of men. So there's this traditionalism. And here's what the problem is. Paul says, Paul says these things, he says they, they were a shadow of things to come, but the substance now is of Christ. Now what that meant is you see that in verse number, verse number 17. It says these things, what it was saying is these things are pointing towards Christ talking about the Old Testament dietary laws, the the new moons, the Sabbath days, the different festivals. They were all pointing to Christ. You know, watching the cartoon and you see this little, this little, you know, uh, Scooby-Doo, you know, watching some Scooby-Doo with my kids. There's this little, you know, this one episode where the, you know, the light is shining and it's coming down the hall and there's, there's something coming and the closer it gets, um, the bigger it is, the shadow on the wall, and it's huge and it's scary, and then it ends up being a little scrappy-doo, you know, just a little bitty guy. Um, it's a shadow of something coming, but the shadow of what was coming in the Old Testament through all of these dietary laws and these traditional days, they weren't, they weren't pointing towards something small that was coming. They're actually pointing towards something that was better than all of them, according to the book of Hebrews, because it was all pointing to Christ. And what he says, he says, these things were pointing. You're, you're spending all this time about the shadow, but what about what it was pointing towards? Christ has come. What it's saying is this. You want to know what can change you? It's not the, it's not the traditions. It's not It's not the Old Testament dietary restrictions. What changes you is what has come, the one who they were pointing to. It's Christ, and Christ alone is the one who can change us. Let's look as we continue on. Verse number number 18, let no one disqualify you. Now, this is another level. First of all, he says, let no one pass judgment on you, but now he's talking about disqualifying you. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. Now, there's the problem. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Verse 18, uh, if I were going to uh, put this in a category, basically not only were, they, were these false teachers teaching that there was maturity and spirituality that could be had by a traditionalism, but also by, I think maybe my, my favorite word would maybe be an experientialism. Um, these people were uh, teaching and they were talking and uh, lots of little uh, doctrines that are going on in these verses. That, but if I can just, if I can just kind of broaden it out to, um, to really an emphasis on an experience. This, these visions of angels and uh, uh, being puffed up because of of the things that that they were experiencing, and basically basically making a big emphasis about, hey, listen, if you want to grow, if you want to mature, man, there's these. Ex- there's these experiential things that need to be taking place in your life. And I think it's uh, uh, probably what we are the most uh, readily um, uh, maybe aware of would be uh, maybe some things that go on in the charismatic movement where 
Um, I'll never forget, I'll never forget preaching at a church in Pennsylvania. After preaching, I had this guy come up to me. Uh, he was uh, tattoos from head to toe. I, I, I quickly, maybe wrongly misjudged him, but I'm just looking at this guy. He had like um, earrings all the way around and like these big gauges in his ear. And I, I thought he was, you know, well, he was a guest, but I, I just walked up to him and I began talking with him and he just immediately cuts in. He says, that was the most incredible presentation of Jesus I've ever heard in my life. I'm like, cool, that's great. And, and he started talking about his church that he went to. And he started talking about, he started talking about these visions that he would have. He was the head of their worship team and how he would, how, um, the way he knew how to set up their worship for Sunday is that Jesus would actually meet with him in his room. And he would have visions of Jesus Christ. And he was just going on and on about how Jesus comes into my room. And I mean, it's actually how he talked. He comes into my room and, and we talk and, and he like helps me plan the service. And I'm like, man, that's incredible. And I, I remember telling him, and it was, it was, okay, it was the disqualification of me in his eyes. When I told him, I said, man, you know what? I've never had a vision of Jesus. And he was done with me. I had no business up preaching. Um, this intimidation, okay, I am, I am, uh, uh, fairly, uh, I know what I'm doing, I think, a little bit. And so I wasn't overly intimidated by this guy. But I'll never forget a friend of mine that I, I um, uh, got saved right after I got saved. When I was 21 years old, he was the guy that I grew up with. And I, uh, I, I, I remember just really going after him hard and sharing the gospel with him. And shortly thereafter, I was living in South Carolina, but he gets in touch with me. He said, Aaron, he said, I just turned to Christ, man. He said, I've, I'm, God's just, he saved me, man. Me and him, we talked all the time. Um, his brother was a pastor at a big charismatic church in my, uh, in my hometown called the Church on the Rise. And uh, he was in that church. And I remember him calling me on Sunday afternoon and he would just go on about how the service was just such a blessing. And he said, Aaron, I wish you could have been there. You could just feel it. You could just feel it. And uh, I remember just trying to talk to him. I didn't want to discourage him because he was a new believer. But then I remember talking to him and I remember talking to him at times when he was just discouraged because guess what? He wasn't feeling it. And he said, Aaron, it's like, I don't know what's going on. He said, I feel like other people are feeling it, but I just say, it's like, man, it's just like I'm, I'm there. I mean, the songs are being sung and, and everything's going on, but I'm just not, I don't know what's going on. Is it me? You know, as a young, immature believer, um, this feeling of being disqualified in the midst of his salvation because the experience that he was looking to, to be his maturity, to be his spiritual growth wasn't happening. Um, this goes on all the time. And Paul says that the problem is that these people actually, they were looking to experiences or they were being taught to look to experiences instead of what does he say in verse number 19? Instead, verse number 19, he says, and they're not doing what? They're not holding fast to the head. You see the head there is capitalized because it's talking about who? Who is it, folks? It's talking about Jesus Christ. 
They are looking to, on one side, they're being taught to look to traditionalism to be what matured them and grew them spiritually. They're looking to an experientialism, an an experience-based growth, maturing, that doesn't have power. Now, folks, we, I think, sometimes can fall prey. Um, I think, for the most part, the people who are here and members of uh, Inner City Baptist Church, attenders of Inner City Baptist Church are probably here because you know that this isn't a place where the hoopla is what reigns. And it's not a place where we look to an experience in order to be our maturing and our growing in Christ. Um, but I do think many times in our own little ways, we, we can fall prey. Like just for instance, um, the teens just got back from camp. Now, I love camp, okay? I've worked camp. I worked at Northland for years. 13 summers I spent at Northland camp before I came here. I loved Northland. It was, a, it was an awesome place. Um, still, ever since then, I've preaching camps. I was just preaching at the wilds of New England just a few weeks ago, uh, limping around, hobbling around on my little peg leg. They, uh, I, was, I was named the peg leg preacher, so I've been told. Um, but anyway, I, I, I love camp, but we used to talk all the time when we were at Northland about camp decisions. What's a camp decision? It's a, it's a decision that you make. You hear preaching, good preaching. Um, you hear straightforward preaching. Man, you get convicted. Guess what? That's what the Holy Spirit of God does is the word of God is preached. Man, you get, you get convicted. You, you make decisions maybe. I, you know, decision to do what? I, I, but, you know, so many times there's this, there, there can be this push to this decisionalism and this, but it's, it's kind of sometimes this experience. A camp decision is a decision that you make at camp and then like, you know, two weeks later, you're right back where you started. And we talk to kids all the time about, hey, listen, it's not camp. It's not, it's not this piece of real estate. I mean, listen to this, folks. This, this happened to me just a few weeks ago when I was at camp and I was talking to a kid who was just struggling with pornography. And listen to what he said to me. He, he said this, he said, he said, the only place that I can get victory is at camp. He said, there's no way for me to get victory when I get home. He said, I don't have any accountability when I get home. Now, folks, accountability is great, but does accountability have the ability to change your heart? No person can change your heart. You see, this is an experientialism that you look to. I mean, you want to know why camp is so powerful? We really, really do turn off all screens for a whole week. They're not sure if they can make it. And they hear the word of God preached over and over and over. At Northland Camp, we had them listening to the word of God five times a day. Five times a day we had them in the word. Well, one of those was their own personal God nighttime, but beyond that, four times a day. Guess what? It has an effect on you because what's being presented to you is Christ, the one who can change you. Christ is what's being put before you. It's not, it's not the, it's not the, you know, there's no spirituality in the soil at camp. 
The same Jesus who works in you at camp, guess what? That same Jesus goes with you home. He's in you. Chapter number one, the hope of glory. Folks, sometimes we can, we can buy into the same type of stuff. You know, some churches, once again, I'm not in these anymore, but so many times churches, there is this emphasis of, of, of once again, making a decision or um, some churches are real big about coming down an aisle. Uh, fine, have at it. Come spend time wherever you need to go to spend time with God. But personally, is there anything about walk the experience of walking down an aisle? Is there anything about that trip that has power to change you? No. It's the Jesus you meet with who can change you. Be it here or be it there or be it beside your bed. It's the Jesus that saves you. That same Jesus is the one who changes you. Folks, we can look to so many different experiential things that actually have no power. Sometimes, I mean, some people, you know, I I, kind of can bust on the experience of certain type of worship service on this side of things that makes you feel the experience of spirituality. Can I just be honest with you? Okay, personally, I, I, I probably lean a little more towards um, not as crazy of a service. But can, I, can, can we ever feel more spiritual because we like the feeling of a more conservative service? The experience on either side has no power to actually mature us even though you have a a conviction maybe of what you think is best, still, it's not an experience. It's the Christ we hold on to. They weren't holding on to the head. And then I love what we find in the rest of verse number number 19. It says, not holding fast to the head. And then this beautiful picture of growth, this beautiful picture of a body maturing, the beautiful picture of inside the church, being a part of the church that's growing from whom the whole body, talking about Christ, from him, the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. The third thing I want us to see, I'll I'll read these last four verses together, but the last thing um, would be actually uh, an asceticism or the the NASB, if you're looking at a NASB, it's the asceticism. Really, a, a maturity that's based on a self-abasement. Uh, that's the word that you find in the NASB. Let me read these verses for you. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that shall uh, that all uh, perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These things. Uh, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They have no value. They have no power when it comes to helping us get victory in our lives and maturing spiritually. 
So you see there in the middle of verse number 23, and I, there's some that I just don't have time to kind of get into there in verse, uh, what he's talking about there in 20 and, and uh, verse 20 especially, but um, verse 23, he says, the, um, these teachings have indeed appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and listen to this, these phrases, and asceticism and severity to the body. So asceticism or self-abasement is basically a... Um, uh, a, a rigid self-neglect or a rigid, even to the point of, uh, of bringing yourself into bodily harm, um, all for the purpose of, of maturing you, of changing you, of making you more spiritual. Now, this is something that I, you know, seems odd to us to think about, but, um, it's, it's gone on for years and years through the centuries, especially in the, the Catholic church. Um, I mean, it, it was said, I've read this, that um, uh, even Pope John Paul, some of his, some of his uh, nurses, nuns that were nurses that attended him later in his life, could actually hear him at night whipping himself in his private quarters. This would be something that was commonly done in Catholicism, even uh, even even Martin Luther, uh, before his true uh, before his conversion, before coming to Christ and Christ alone, um, in his dietary needs, um, brought himself bodily harm. Um, once again, for the purpose of this rigid um, uh, self denial that brought you physical. Uh, pain and suffering, believing that somehow, some way, this made you more spiritual. It it made you more holy. Uh, even Mother Teresa. Once again, um, I, I've I've read of, of of several things, but Mother Teresa apparently used to wear this this sash underneath her garments that actually would rub a rash on her back as she would go about her days doing her good deeds. And at night, she would offer them up to God for forgiveness for her unknown sins. Um, folks, there is no reason for us to bring bodily harm to ourselves in order to try to pay for our sins. Jesus Christ was brought ultimate harm so that we could be forgiven. This, um, this thinking that he's talking about here, this asceticism, um, and it's not just in bodily harm, but just uh, like Martin Luther with, with over-the-top uh, depriving yourself of needs, of things. It has no power to change us. Um, like, like, for instance, uh, you, you've heard of, of, of monks going into monasteries that struggling with lust, right? Struggling with lust going up into monasteries way up in the mountains to get away from the nuns because what's the problem? It's the girls. Guess what they found out? The problem actually wasn't the nuns. The problem was them. Um, this out, you know, over-the-top self-denial that sometimes I think we can put ourselves through, and he brings this up as something that has no power to change us. 
History is full of this, but I, I think that we can struggle with the same thing, and it's because sometimes we have a wrong understanding of what the problem is. You know, I think about a, a picture that I saw not too long ago. Actually, my wife pulled it up for me, uh, for me to use in a PowerPoint, and it was kind of a funny picture, um, and it was a picture of a lady that actually had a piece of tape over her mouth and had a circle around her face, and it had a line through it, and it just, on the piece of tape, it said, no Food. So apparently this was someone who was, I don't know, struggled with gluttony. And so here's the answer, a piece of tape on your mouth, no food. Now I have a question. Can, can tape on your mouth help you with a gluttony problem? I mean, on one side, I, I mean, if you can't get it in there, right? But here's the real question. The real question is, is gluttony a food problem or is gluttony a heart problem? And now the question, can a piece of tape on your mouth change your heart? And we all know that it can't. A piece of tape on your mouth can't change your heart. You see, this is looking to something other than holding on to Christ to be the very thing that changes who we are, that changes us. Um, talking to guys in uh, really, uh, especially when I was at Northland, talking to different spread the word guys. It's been something that has been has come up so many times, and uh, and and just helping different team team members. And uh, but really, I think especially when I was at Northland, having guys that I worked with and helped and talked to uh, about purity and talking about struggles with uh, with with uh, with pornography. And I'll never forget talking to a guy and. Um, he had this. He had this nail that was around his finger, and it was tight. It was like cutting into his finger. And uh, I'm like, man, what's going on with uh, with that nail? And he said, well, you know what? Every time I struggle with my thoughts, I just crank it a little tighter. He said, it helps me think about Jesus. It helps me. It helps me think about the pain that He suffered for me. Well, that's good. Um, he said, it, it just helps me. And, and so every time he said, man, and so I just know it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to help me. It's going to help me with my mind. It's going to help me with my thoughts. And folks, there's nothing wrong with having things in our life that remind us of the work of Christ on our behalf, that remind us to look to Jesus. But I got a question. Can a, can a nail around your finger that you're cranking into your, can it, does it really have the power to change my heart? No, there's only one person who has the power to change my heart. It's Jesus Christ. Now, I'll never forget this guy, uh, um, at Bob Jones, when I was in school there. I mean, out of the third floor of the, of the dormitory, here comes this computer, the whole thing flying out the window, crashing on the ground. So I wonder it didn't kill somebody. So fed up with pornography. Sends the whole thing flying out the window. Now, folks, I, I, I mean, I commend his resolve. And I think there's a lot of people who probably, they need to take some kind of desperate measures. But here's the question. Can throwing your computer out your window actually change your heart? I mean, folks, it can't. Getting, you know, getting um, covenant eyes on your phone and on your computer. I'm all for covenant eyes. I got covenant eyes. But can a computer program really be the answer instead of Jesus? 
Please tell me we don't believe that a computer program has the power to change our heart. Folks, we can look to things and not be holding on to Christ. 12 steps of AA, have at it. I'm sure it can help. It can help an addict in the midst of, in just bringing order into his life. But 12 steps of AA has no power to change a person's heart. There's one person. There is one man who has the power to change our heart. What's his name? His name is Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, hold on to Christ and don't let go. These other things, they have a show of wisdom, but they have no power. Um, how do we hold on to Christ? I think if you move into chapter three quickly, listen to what it says. If you then be raised with Christ, a statement of our a union with Christ, our salvation. If you then be raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen to this phrase, when Christ, you ready? Who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Folks, you want to know when it, what it looks like for us to hold on to Christ with everything we've got? It's when Jesus Christ becomes our life. He's our everything. I mean, on one side, that happens to us positionally when we get saved, but then as we go through the practice of our life, is he everything? Is he your life? Is he your life? Um, I was talking to somebody not long ago and I was sharing the gospel with him and this guy was a big, he was a big Joe Biden fan. And I made the comment to him um, as I was explaining what a Christian was. I said, so you're, uh, you know, I said, you know, let's say somebody is such a fan of Joe Biden, you would call yourself a Bidenite. You know, I mean, you were just bought in. You know, if, I mean, if you were, you know, if, if you were so into Joe Biden, you would call, you know, you would say, Joe Biden is my life, you know, or on the flip side, someone who would say, you know, a Donald Trump is my life. If you would say Donald Trump is your life, I think you need to get a life personally. Um, but I mean, still any person, I shouldn't be picking on them. But that's just, that was the illustration I gave to this guy because he was all about Joe Biden. But I said, a Christian is a person who Christ is their life. You know, if, if, if someone were a Bidenite, you know what you would assume about that person? That anything that Biden was saying, they were doing. Wherever, wherever Biden was leading, they were following. Whatever Biden was saying, they were trying to do it. Folks, you know what a Christian is? It's a person who Christ is their life. Pastor, just this morning, he was talking about the change in our life through difficult sins that takes place only as the word of God is going in. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is the living word, but Jesus Christ 
has given us the written word. Just later in chapter 3, verse 16, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Folks, what Jesus Christ, those who he is their life, what Jesus Christ is, has put down is what we're picking up. It's what we're seeking to obey. It's what we're seeking to live out every day of our life. Folks, this is how we hold on to Christ. This is how we hold on, keep our eyes fixed on him, seeking things that are above where he is, where he's seated as we wait for Christ, who is our life, because when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. May God help us. May God help us, first of all, to believe that it's Christ and Christ alone, not just that is our justification and gives us a right standing, but is our sanctification. He is the one who changes us and matures us and grows us and makes us holy. Folks, may we hold on to Christ in our Christian life. May we be followers of Christ who is our life. But then may we be so convinced of it that we look at an addict and we know that what we offer him is not, it's not just hope for the future, it's hope for his tomorrow. We look at our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors. We look at people who are overwhelmed in sin. And we know that what we are offering them is the answer, not even just to eternity, but to this life. Folks, this is the Jesus that we hold on to with everything that we've got. Holding on to the head, Jesus Christ is our life.